Good morning, everyone. Yeah, open up your Bibles to Psalm 1. Uh, we're going to be on page 472 in the Pew Bible. And I just want to say, I, sh- I should have said this last week, but uh, kiddos, you are doing such a great job hanging out with us. Can we all just recognize how awesome our kids are? Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, joining with us these last couple of weeks. I know your classrooms are way more fun than listening to me talk, um, but we'll, we'll get back to that uh, shortly. Uh, as always, we'll do a little Q&R at the end. If you want to go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt, you can uh, text in your questions. We'll take a look at that when we're done. And uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Lord God, you are um, in your in your essence mysterious. Uh, we are like Jackson prayed earlier. We are limited. We are broken. Uh, we are um, unable to comprehend you. And yet, in your goodness and your grace, you pursue us. You make yourself known to us. You move first in relationship and invite us to respond. God, you are are committed to your people, to shaping us into the image of your son, to completing your mission in the world to save and to bringing your kingdom about in its fullness. And God, I just pray that as we spend a few moments today in your word, thinking about this this thing called discipline, spiritual discipline, practice, habits, rhythms, um, the part that we play, the initiative that we are invited to take to participate with you in this work. God, I pray that we would be encouraged I pray that we would be excited to be a part of what you're doing and to know you more deeply and to rejoice in you more often. Pray that um, my words would be your words this morning and and if if any that aren't would be easily forgettable and that you just speak by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. My friend's father was in the hospital recently because of some blockage in the arteries that go to his small intestine. And that caused the tissue of his small intestine to effectively just die. And the solution to this, unfortunately, was to just remove the dead intestinal tissue, and he lost, I don't know how many feet of it. But he lost so much that he was in danger of not being able to digest food. Because what the small intestine does is it, it, it breaks down your food and takes the nutrients out of it into your body. 
And, if, and it does this throughout its length, little by little, as the food passes through it. And if your intestine isn't long enough, there's not enough tissue and not enough time to get that done. And so as he's recovering, there's been talk of installing a port so that he can supplement what nutrition he's still able to get from his food with added nutrients, potentially for the rest of his life. Because see, we can eat all the food in the world, but if our bodies don't do anything with it, if they don't break it down into something that can be brought into our cells and give us energy, it doesn't really matter. And I think there's a, a spiritual correlation there because we've been talking, we talked last week about reading and studying the scriptures, and we talked about how important it was to be people who are in the practice of reading and studying, but we can be people that do those things, and it can be a worthless pursuit if we aren't bringing the truth of God's word into our hearts and minds and actually being nourished by it. I spend a lot of time reading Bible commentaries, and the funny thing about Bible commentaries is, is when you become a PhD-level Bible scholar and, like, your whole focus is, like, the first chapter of James or something, like, you get so narrow-focused and you write these books, in order to be a legitimate scholar, you have to interact with all the other scholarship in the field. And so there's all kinds of footnotes in Bible commentaries. And the thing that always amazes me is how many, I, I tend to read commentaries from men and women who are Christians, but the work they have to do to defend their position means they have to interact with a lot of Bible scholars that are not Christians. Men and women who have dedicated their lives to studying the scriptures and yet don't believe any of it. Because you can be a person, even at that level, that gives all of your time and energy to digesting God's word and not be nourished by it at all. We can have, and we should have, a regular habit of reading and studying the Bible like we talked about last week. But we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are maturing if we're not doing the things that we are reading. James says this in his book, chapter one, be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. James says, our proper nourishment by God's word results in action, in a way of life. And so this morning, I want to look at some principles of spiritual discipline that God has given us in order to not just ingest the scriptures, but to actually be nourished by the scriptures so that we will be transformed by them. So the question is, what does it look like to be properly nourished by God's word? And Psalm one gives us some principles here. And the first principle, I think, on the surface of this psalm, I would say like this, don't eat poison. Verse one, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. How happy. Do you want to be happy? 
Sometimes in the church, we kind of downplay happiness, don't we? Happiness is fleeting. Don't desire happiness, desire holiness. And I get that. But what if happiness and holiness are actually the same thing? Pretty famous line from John Piper that I found helpful over the years. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. See, the life that God is calling you to that reflects on him the most glory and praise through your joyful obedience is actually the life that ends up being the most fulfilling, satisfying, and happy. And there are a lot of things that can get in the way of this happiness. Derek Kidner in his Psalms commentary says, these phrases from verse one, draw attention to the realms of thinking, behaving, and belonging in which a person's fundamental choice of allegiance is made and carried through. This trajectory that the unhappy person is on is a mirror image of James' exhortation in chapter one that we just read. James says, don't be hearers only, but doers, and it will change you. And what the psalmist says is that hearers of wickedness, doers of sin, well, that will transform you into a mocker of God. The psalmist here begins his description of descent into wickedness in the life of our minds. We begin thinking the thoughts of the wicked, then doing the things that they do, then actually becoming one of them and advocating for them. Any behavior or practice that we are caught up in that goes against the will of God and our ultimate happiness begins in our minds. The sinister thing, though, is that it doesn't stay there. The descent into death here is something that is going to play out in us because a little bit of poison makes us want more and more of it. Dallas Willard says this, if you, want within, if you live within only human wisdom, you will find it constantly necessary to do what is wrong. In that case, you will become an authority on what is right and wrong, because after all, you will have to manage right and wrong. You will have to have ready explanations of why, though you do wrong things, you're still a good person, and why the, those who do not do as you do are fools. You will become an expert scorner, able to put everyone in their place with appropriate doses of contempt which is an essential element of scorn. Once you begin to eat poison, you continue to eat poison. This is a controversial idea, but some of the uh, doctors that I like to listen to talk about sugar as poison. That's pretty extreme. But the funny thing about sugar is it's become something that we as Americans need more and more and more of. I don't know if you followed the, uh, the case in Ireland a couple years ago where Subway, the American restaurant chain, moved into Ireland to open restaurants and they advertised their freshly baked bread and the Supreme Court of Ireland said, actually, you can't advertise that as bread. You have to call it cake because it contains five times the amount of sugar that's allowable for bread in Ireland. We're Americans. <laughs> We like to eat sugar. Because, see, this, the, the, the obesity and the related diseases we see in our cultural, culture, culture, they increase because we end up needing more and more sugar to be satisfied. We get satiated by what tastes good, and next time we need more in order to fix it. And this is the way wickedness works. Pornography, drugs, gambling, 
addicted to likes on social media. All of these things may seem to draw us in with seemingly innocent ideas, but they don't stop. Wicked ideas spawn more wicked ideas, which lead to wicked actions and habits and ultimately a whole life. And so the warning from the psalmist is, if you want to be happy, be careful what you are letting into your mind. Dallas Willard again says, bluntly, to serve God well, we must think straight. And crooked thinking, intentional, unintentional or not, always favors evil. So what does this look like practically? First, be careful who your friends are. Who do you take advice from? Men and women who are deeply committed to Christ or not? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. And I think this whole verse has fallen into question in the American church because uh, of our desire to be missional. You know, we say Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And for some reason, this question, do you have any non-Christian friends, becomes a test of faithfulness for you as an evangelist. And I think that's right. I think we should know people who don't know Jesus. But if you're a Christian, your deepest relationship should be with other Christians. And those people whose voices you listen to and take seriously should be men and women that are dedicated to pursuing Jesus. If you find that that's not the case in your life, take steps to correct that. Number two, limit your access to media. Cable news, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, X, threads, I don't even know anymore. None of these services are designed to make you wise. They are designed to make money from you. Edward Tufte, a computer scientist at Yale, says there are only two industries that call their customers users, illegal drugs and software. There have always been people with wrong ideas about life that Christians have had to think carefully about. But many of us spend literally hours a day absorbing content that is filled with crooked thinking. We've become experts at constantly filling our minds with information. A couple weeks, we're going to talk about silence and solitude as a discipline. Put a pin in that. But the information that we often consume is poisonous. So the psalmist says, don't be the person who eats poison. And the second thing he says is delight. Verse two, instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. The happy person doesn't just dutifully read their Bible every day. They delight in the Lord's instruction. What do you delight in? How would you answer that question? What do you plan your day around? What do you think about when you're daydreaming? What do you look forward to each day? Is it the Bible? Is it God's word? Willard, again, commenting on this passage, says he loves it, is thrilled by it, can't keep his mind off it. He thinks it is beautiful, strong, wise, an incredible gift of God's mercy and grace. He therefore dwells upon it day and night, turning it over and over in his mind and speaking it to himself. He does not do this to please God, but because the law pleases him. It is where his whole being is oriented. 
See, Willard is saying that the scriptures aren't something that the happy person just has to check off in order to be accepted. They are a joy to him in and of themselves. We see this again in Psalm 119. There's 176 verses in Psalm 119, and almost every single one of them is the psalmist going, God, your word, it's so good. This is amazing. I saw this picture of this kid with this potato the other day, and uh, the caption said, find someone who loves you like this boy loves potatoes. Do we love God's word? And this is the point in the sermon where we all begin to feel guilty and ashamed, right? I'm not living up to this standard of excellence. I should be better. Maybe last week you were feeling pretty good because you were nailing the like weekly quiet time. I I read my Bible every day. I'm doing it. But you don't delight in it. You don't love it. In the movie, The Matrix, there's these two scenes that are juxtaposed to each other. They're back to back, and I think it's really brilliant. The first scene is the character Cypher, who's one of the, the bad guys in the movie, and he is, he is being tempted to betray his friends by this amazing, juicy steak. And he knows that this juicy steak isn't real. It's a figment of the computer's imagination for him, but he doesn't care. It's just so good. And the very next scene, it cuts to all his friends. They're sitting around a table and there's this pipe in the ceiling with a valve on it and they open the valve and this glop comes out of the valve and the character says, it's a single-celled protein combined with synthetic aminos, vitamins, and minerals, everything the body needs. He plops it on the table. And another character says, if you think hard enough, it's almost like eating runny eggs. And I love the way these two scenes pair with each other. The one is this fake experience that seems so delightful and fulfilling, contrasted with the thing that you really need, the thing that's going to give you life, but it's something that you can barely swallow. And I think this is how we often perceive the Christian life. That, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. He rose from the dead. I believe it. It's true. But it just kind of sucks. I'm just going to grit my teeth and get through it. But I don't want that life. I want, I want the life. I want the life of the psalmist. The one where I delight in what's good for me. Where I delight in God's word because I delight in God himself. I want to be somebody that enjoys God so much that I can't wait to hear what he has to say to me. So I want to give you a little bit of an illustration, a paradigm for thinking about becoming someone that enjoys God. And that paradigm is coffee. Everybody everybody has a relationship with coffee. It's an important part of our lives. We We have a whole wing of our church dedicated to it. Uh, there's a whole ministry. There's probably more coffee volunteers than there are children's ministry volunteers. <laughs> that was a little passive-aggressive, wasn't that? <laughs> okay, so there are three orientations towards coffee. The first one, coffee is a vehicle for sugar. Now, if you are a pumpkin spice frappuccino person, if you buy anything on the menu from Dutch Bros, 
This is your orientation to coffee. It's in there, I think. I can't taste it, doesn't matter. The second orientation to coffee is coffee is energy. It gets me up in the morning. I need it to function. I don't care where it comes from, instant Folgers, Starbucks, the break room at work, whatever. Just give me the thing that I need. And then the third orientation is coffee is art. La Morena Guatemala beans have rich notes of chocolate and brown sugar, caramel, raspberry. You always drink it black, preferably with a siphon brewer. Take care to notice the notes of, of flavor as they morph when it cools, preferably while listening to John Coltrane on vinyl. This, this has been my coffee journey. And I think it's a helpful way to understand and think about our journey with God. Some of us don't really enjoy God. We enjoy the stuff that comes with God. We've, we've made friends in the church or, or you just like the experience of the energy of singing together or, or the idea of being a spiritual person. Maybe God is this calculated business decision. If I put a fish on my business card and come to this Sunday morning networking group, I'll get more clients. God is a vehicle for something else that we want. And if that's you this morning, I would just, I would just encourage you to be careful God loves you, God wants you, but God will not be mocked or manipulated or used. Take some steps this morning to take your relationship with God more seriously. But maybe some of us, we'd be here and we'd say, no, I need God. I recognize my deficiency. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. My life is a mess. God needs to show up or I'm doomed. Whatever connection with God I need to figure out in my life, I'll do it. And for you, maybe you recognize God's power and his promises. You want to be a person that puts yourself in a place of blessing. We want to be dutiful servants. We want to be good people. We need his grace in our lives to do this, and so we commit. We show up. We practice spiritual discipline. Our relationship with God means something to us because we recognize that God is actually holding our lives together. But then there's this other sort of person. Maybe you've met one. This person delights in God. They can't wait to spend time in prayer and study the scriptures. They're always talking about the way Jesus has changed their life, how the Spirit speaks to them. They are in love with God. They savor him. They revel in him. He's the centerpiece of their lives. Psalm 119 says, how sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Later on, I delight in your commands, which I love. I will lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. What's the point? Single origin artisan black coffee is an acquired taste. It is better, richer, more interesting, more satisfying, more exciting than a caramel frappuccino has the capability of being. But if all you drink is sugar, you do not have the capacity to appreciate good coffee. It will just taste gross, bitter, bland. 
As long as you have a steady diet of sugary coffee or carelessly drink whatever gives you a buzz, you will be unable to train your palate to enjoy something greater and deeper. The author of Hebrews says this, Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. It takes training to be someone who delights in God's word. What do we call that training? We call it meditation. Now, we talked about this word in the context of prayer a couple weeks ago. In the context of scripture, it's similar but slightly different. Prayerful meditation is meant to foster in us a present awareness of the presence of Christ in us. It focuses our hearts on the reality that we are united to Christ and his spirit lives inside of us, speaks to us, directs us, and empowers us. Scripture meditation is meant to plant God's word, the truth, into our minds and deeper into our hearts so that from the reservoir from which our lives spring, we are saturated in him. Jesus says in Matthew 12, a good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. If you are in Christ here this morning, your fundamental nature has been redeemed. Jackson read from Ephesians this morning, we have been made alive in Christ. We are capable of good now, and what comes out of the storeroom of our deepest heart can be transformed. Again, just a little clarity on the difference between Eastern and Western meditation, because this is a kind of a flashpoint. Eastern meditation can actually be really dangerous. It can invite into your heart and mind things that you don't want to be there. Eastern meditative traditions focus on emptying your mind. Christian meditation focuses on filling your mind. A classic example of this is, is a cow chewing its cud. A cow's digestive system isn't great. And so it chews on the grass for a while and then swallows it and then vomits it back up again and chews on it some more and swallows it multiple times. Super gross, sorry. It's, it's meditating on its grass. I think a better example, even though I've given you that gross one, is tasting good coffee. If you ever go to a coffee tasting event, you, you get a little cup of espresso and you go, and you swish it around and get it out on all the parts of your tongue. You sniff it, you swirl it in your cup to just see what it looks like. You meditate on it. How does meditation work? Here's a couple examples of different ways to meditate. One is to think deeply about a short passage of scripture. Psalm 23, one says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. You could read that. You could read the whole Psalm. You can make it part of your daily practice. That's good. But what if you just wanted to spend some time on that first verse? The Lord, the Lord, there's a, there's an, a definite article there. The Lord, right? He's not a Lord. He's not one of many Lords. He's the one Lord. The Lord. What's, what's a Lord? A Lord is someone who, who you owe your allegiance to, who has power and control over his domain. The Lord is. The Lord, it, my relationship with the Lord is not a past thing. It's a present thing. Right now, 
The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is the, Lord is the shepherd of, of his people, but I'm one of his people. I have a personal relationship with the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. Do a deep dive on what the shepherd means in the Middle Eastern context when this was written. He cares for his sheep. He takes care of his sheep. He, he leads his sheep. He loves his sheep. He knows them. They know him. And we could go on and on and on just through every single word of that phrase, thinking deeply about what it's communicating to us. Another way to practice biblical meditation is to bring God's word to bear in different areas throughout your life. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So I can think, okay, I'm a husband. In what ways can I put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience in relation to my wife? I'm a father. How might I, how might I put these virtues into practice in relationship to my children? I'm an elder in the church. What does it look like as a whole? What does it look like in individual conversations? As I, as I go to this meeting today, how can I put on compassion and kindness and humility? Take a passage of scripture and just shine its light on as many different instances of your own life as you can. See how it plays out throughout all of your day and week. Third way to practice meditation is by memorizing the scriptures. And we all know what this means. We lie to ourselves as adults. We say, you know, small children are really good at memorizing, but now that I'm old, I can't do it anymore. That is not true. Adults can and do memorize stuff all the time. Dawson Trotman, who's the founder of the Navigators, if you've ever heard of that uh, organization, he got saved and was working, driving a truck at a lumber yard. He used his time driving the truck to memorize Bible verses, and in three years, he memorized 1,000 of them. That's a lot. We can memorize Scripture. In fact, God tells us, <laughs> he commands us to memorize Scripture. Deuteronomy 11, it says, imprint these words of mine on your hearts and minds. Bind them as a sign on your hands. Let them be a symbol on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. That's like the life verse of Hobby Lobby, right? Like, we can memorize God's Word. Jesus says it as well in John 15. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. We as a people, as a culture, have generally just set aside the idea of memorizing things. I'm as guilty of this as anyone else. I know, um, I know two phone numbers. I know my phone number and I know my wife's phone number because they're only one digit different. And I don't know anyone else's phone number. I don't know my daughter's phone number. I don't know nobody's phone number. I used to know a lot of phone numbers, but then I got a phone that does the memory work for me. And so we've trained ourselves to not be people that memorize, but we can get that skill back if we try. 
Dallas Willard again says, Bible memorization is absolutely fundamental to spiritual formation. This is, this is a strong statement. If I had to choose between all the disciplines of the spiritual life, I would choose Bible memorization because it is a fundamental way of filling our mind with what it needs. This book of the law shall not depart out from your mouth. That's where you need it. How does it get in your mouth? Memorization. My encouragement to us this morning is that by taking seriously the gift of meditation of God's word, we will over time become people who delight in it. By limiting our access to things that distract us or things that are just sheer poison for our minds, and by becoming people that have a desire to learn to delight in the word of God, I think God will honor that desire and actually make us people that love his word and him more. Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became a delight to me and the joy of my heart for I bear your name, Lord God of armies. Jeremiah decided to take God's word into his heart and then they became a delight. We only have so much space in our minds and our hearts for things. We are finite people. So if we are going to pursue God through meditation on the scriptures, something else probably has to go. Paul says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The psalmist goes on and he, he talks about the consequences of this kind of attitude of delight in God and his word. And that's fruitfulness. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bear its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The psalmist describes the life of God's word nourishing us like, the, like water nourishes a tree. As the tree brings the life-giving water from the endless resource that is a flowing stream, that water is transformed into fruit. And you get to this line, like, whatever he does prospers. Is that one of those like name it and claim it kind of verses where like, I, I really want a new car. I'm just going to go out and go to the dealership and just see what happens and, and God will give it to me. No. <laughs> the tree's connection to the life-giving water doesn't give the tree the ability to grow anything it wants. The prosperity of the tree is dependent on the identity of the tree and the nutrients that it's given. This is not a promise to pursue whatever random desire we have and assume that God has promised to bless it. Our fruitfulness is tied to our identity. What kind of tree are we? What sort of fruit are we designed to produce? Turns out, Galatians 5 says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Hilary of Poitiers in 350 AD said, meditation in the law does not lie in reading its words, but in pious performance of its injunctions. Not in a mere perusal of the books and writings, but in a practical meditation and exercise of their respective contents and in a fulfillment of the law by the works we do by night and day. Meditation is a means that God has given us for our transformation. And our disciplined practice of bringing the scriptures deeply into our minds bears fruit that looks like the Holy Spirit when we begin to live out the truth 
that we have planted in our hearts. And additionally, memorizing and learning the scriptures deeply gives the Holy Spirit tools to speak to us. Glenn Packiam writes, if the Holy Spirit is a painter and your heart is the canvas on which he paints, the Bible is the palette of colors he uses. If you're well-versed in scripture, you're giving the Spirit more colors to paint with. The language that the Holy Spirit speaks to us most often is the Word of God. And the more that you are familiar with it, the more clearly you will hear Him speak. So many times, the question is, how do I understand the will of God? How do I hear His voice? We've been given a huge tool in the Scriptures to discern God's voice. And the more familiar you are with it, the easier it will be. And then the psalmist wraps up by talking about the way. He says, the wicked, they're not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. The psalm ends with this solemn warning to the wicked. Everything that you think you are gaining by your selfishness, in your mockery, in your pride, in your deceit, it will all end. Everything that you hold dear will come to nothing. The example of the chaff is, is that the, uh, the harvesters would beat the wheat and the kernels of the wheat were heavy. And as the stalks were beaten, the, the kernels would fall to the ground in a pile And the harvesters would pick up that pile and throw it up in the air. And the chaff, the inedible part, was light. And as the wind blew, it would just blow away. And what was left over was the kernels on the floor. The chaff comes to nothing. A life of wickedness, a life pursuing whatever the latest thing is, will lead nowhere. But then there's a promise. God will watch over the way of the righteous. And this is where we can, this is where we can get tripped up. The way of the righteous. That's the one that, that does more and tries harder and acts better, right? No. What's the way of the righteous? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way of the righteous. Jesus is the one that doesn't walk in the advice of the wicked. Jesus is the one that doesn't stand in the pathway of sinners. Jesus is the one that doesn't sit in the company of mockers. Jesus is the one that delights in the Lord's instruction and meditates on it day and night. Jesus was the one obedient to his father to the point of death, who rose from the dead bearing fruit in its season. And that fruit is us. Jesus is the vine that we are grafted into. We feed off his life-giving nourishment. And as we talk week after week about these disciplines, I want you to continue to hear me. All of this is a gift of his grace. Pursue Christ 
through his word. Cut out the things that distract you and learn to love the scriptures, but know that even your desire to delight in God is a gift from God. And just one more encouragement before we close. Have you ever been on the freeway in California? Some of you are from California and you're like, yeah, it's fine. Those of you that have only visited California have traumatic experiences about the freeways. If you've ever been, this doesn't happen as much now that we have GPS, but back in the day, I remember going to California with my family and just recognizing instantly that I should not say anything in the car because the tension was just too high for conversation. There was like a big map and it was just not good. What happens, what happens when you're in the wrong lane and you realize at the last minute, uh-oh, I'm going on the freeway. I didn't want to get on the freeway. There's like eight cars wide and there's trucks and now I can't turn around. There's, it's one way. What, what do you do? I'm on the wrong road. There's like a thousand exits on a California freeway, right? You just get off the next exit. The way of the wicked Oftentimes, we find ourselves on it without realizing it. But the good news of God's grace is that there are many off-ramps. If you're in a place where you think you've, you've strayed, where you don't think you have a deep relationship with God, maybe you don't really feel a desire for deepening that relationship with God. Like, do you want to have that desire? Do you want to want to have that desire? Today, this reminder from the Psalms, today is an off-ramp for you from the way of wickedness. Maybe, maybe you'd say, my whole life is caramel frappuccinos and they are killing me. Acknowledge the grace of God this morning. Repent from the sin of pride or arrogance or selfishness or mockery, whatever the Spirit is saying to you right now. And make the choice to get off that freeway to bring yourself back into alignment with the way of righteousness, Jesus himself, and take steps to acquire a taste for delighting in God. Let's do some Q&R. I forgot the fourth orientation of coffee, blech. Thank you. Thank you for that insight. I'll pray for you. Uh, hmm. What does it mean for the Lord to know the way of the righteous and what are the implications for the wicked? I think the idea that, that God knows the way is is a statement about how God has been there already, right? Like, there's nothing that surprises God. God is not in a position to where, like, we're going to show up somewhere and he's going to go, oh, shoot, I didn't see that coming. Like, he is, as our good shepherd, he, he has the plan for your life figured out. And you can trust him with it. 
And I think the implication for the wicked is not so much that God doesn't know. God knows everything. God is omnipotent. But the wicked have no security that they will be cared for, that they will be guarded, that they will be protected, that they will be loved. If you, if you decide to reject the offer of goodness and grace that God gives you and do, go it on your own, all bets are off as to the success of that mission and the psalmist seems to think it's going to go pretty badly. Deuteronomy, this is a great question. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. what is meant by bind them on your hand? Is it literally tattooing Bible verses on your body? Uh, that would be cool. Uh, it's not. <laughs> Although I don't mind, I don't have any problem with that. We can talk about tattoos another time. But yeah, so there were these um, practices in the Jewish community of taking uh, scripture references, parts of the law, and fixing them to your clothes. There were a certain like headgear that they attached these to. There were uh, articles of clothing on their sleeves. And they were like, I mean, this is kind of crass because Jewish culture is way more sophisticated than this, but it's kind of like a what would Jesus do bracelet, you know? Like, put this thing in a place where you will be constantly reminded of it where it will, it will come to mind often. And there's some practical wisdom here. I mean, I made the joke about Hobby Lobby, but like put stuff in your house that has God's word on it. If, you, if, if you know, mealtime is crazy in your home and you're stressed out, find scripture that will bring you peace as you recall it and put it in a place where you will remember it. I know people that they put stuff on their bathroom mirror so they, they see and hear God's word every morning. Take the, uh, the many opportunities we have to be reminded of the truths of scripture throughout your day. And by, by that, we're, we're meditating on it, right? We're bringing it deeper into our hearts. It's a good question. We're gonna take communion this morning. In John 6, Jesus offers up his body and his blood to the people, and, and they are pretty repulsed by that. They don't understand what he's talking about. They don't see his life as something that would be nourishing for them. They haven't developed a taste for the truth of the gospel. And when we participate in the communion meal each week, we are declaring that it is Jesus's life that nourishes us, that his work on the cross is the living water that creates life in us. So I think the challenge for all of us this morning, myself included, is the question, do you delight in God? Do you, if, if, you, if you say me, I don't know that I do. Do you want to delight in God? Do you, do you even want to want to delight in God? And it is, a, it is a work of God's grace to even have that desire. Man, I wish I had a heart that was oriented towards Christ this way. I recognize that I'm not there, but I want to be. So spend some time as we sing, as we take communion, to listen to the Spirit in our midst. What is he saying to you? What are the things that need to change in your life? What are, the, what are the poisons or just the sugary drinks that you're eating that are getting in your way of delighting in God and his word? And commit to take the steps 
in your heart and in your actions to move towards Jesus and finding true nourishment in him this morning. If you're a a Christian here this morning, you're welcome to come to the table. There's wine and juice for the dictates of your conscience or your legal age. And uh, we will celebrate the death of Christ on our behalf this morning. You're welcome to sit or stand as we worship. You're also welcome to come to the prayer rugs if you'd like to kneel. Sometimes shifting the posture of your body helps shift the posture of your heart. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.